0: Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the 2017 movie from director Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk. To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll be chatting with the historical consultant on the film and author of Dunkirk, the history behind the major motion picture, Joshua Levine. Before we chat with Joshua, it's time to set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them, (laughs) it's an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the senior most surviving officer from the Titanic helped in the Dunkirk evacuation. Number two, Churchill... Didn't expect anyone to evacuate from Dunkirk. Number three, people not in the Navy who took their boats signed a form to become temporary members of the Royal Navy. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. Maybe it'll be obvious. Maybe not. Can you find out which one is a lie? We'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Joshua Levine about the historical accuracy of Dunkirk. Everyone knows movies are entertainment, so we... All know that they're not supposed to be entirely accurate, and yet a lot of people still use movies as a source for their historical knowledge. So before we chat about some of these specific plot points, if you took a step back and gave the movie overall a letter grade on accuracy of the miracle at Dunkirk,
1: what would it get? It's a very hard one for me to answer this because you're, in a way, you're asking me to grade my own work. (laughs) And obviously not. Because it's not my movie, and I could advise, but obviously the director Christopher Nolan made made the film he wanted to make, and was you know made every single choice. But on the other hand, clearly I am implicated in in in, in this in some way. But I have to say I was very pleased um, with you know I was there when it was filmed, and you know I was there for, for for most of the way, and. I was very pleased with 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 how it came out and how it looked and I would give it an optimistic B plus I think I think he was very you know he took a lot of care with the things that really mattered to him and there were you know there were things that were wrong often funnily enough not the things that people you know obviously the, the, the film ga- gained a lot of attention and interest and in. people were very with a lot of articles and you know this is right this is wrong Historical accuracy. And often those articles were wrong. You know, pointed out that were mistakes, were not mistakes. And then there were things that nobody seen, or I, there were mistakes that nobody seemed to spot. so for example, I mean there was there was um the train carriage at the end was a, a, a good old nineteen seventies British train carriage, you know, but I didn't see anyone spot there, So I'm, I think I'm revealing that. And then you know and then there were, there were some things that weren't were a matter of choice and sort of so for you know the the one thing that was I found really interesting the director was keen to find out about for example, women uh, at Dunkirk, and there were a lot of women on on the hospital ships, um you know nurses uh, and there were stewardesses on on some of the the passenger ships that that came across. I didn't find any women on. The little ships, you know, yeah, I think he would have he would have liked there to have been a, a woman on a little ship. Um, I didn't find that, so I gave you know I, I, I. Funnily enough, there was an article in I did find in in the Times, London Times, on I think it was the sixth of June, nineteen forty, talking about there having been a woman who took a, a, a boat across to Dunkirk, and the article said that she had phoned up the Admiralty. This woman phoned up the Admiralty asking to take a ship across, or taking her own boat across. And she'd done it in a, in a false voice, and she, she deepened her voice. And said, well, I got to take a boat across, and, and the Admiralty had said yes, and she'd done it. These were the sorts of stories that were flying around, sort of rumors that were flying around in the days and weeks after Dunkirk, in days and weeks after any kind of a, a event like that, I suppose. And so I, I showed him the article and said to him, I, don't, I suspect this probably isn't true it's a sort of story that's flying around but you know i gave it to him to you know do what you will with it um then there were also you know i was looking for black soldiers and this was a point before um commonwealth troops involved so um what i found two mixed race soldiers one who was killed before dunkirk one who was taken prisoner afterwards and i told him you know that that's the information that I that I gave him, and and then there was the matter of the, the quite interesting matter, I suppose, of the of the Indian. There were four Indian companies, animal transport companies, in in France. But of those four, only one was actually at Dunkirk. One company, which was comprised of I think three officers and two hundred ninety eight men, the twenty fifth uh, animal transport company, actually made it off the mole non-jetty on, I think with the night of the 28th, 29th um, of May, but sort of, you know, early in the morning of the 29th. And um, so there in, were Indian soldiers at Dunkirk on the beaches, you know, making their way to the mole. And again, I told him that. So, you know, and then there was a lot of criticism afterwards that Indian soldiers had not been portrayed in the film. You know, that's a whole debate to be had. And that's a debate about where we are in terms of, filmmaking culture and, and you know, what, what should be shown in relation to what can be shown. But again, I, that you know, that's the information I gave. So, so there was, you know, some things are, you know, factually right, factually wrong. The naval men on the mole should have been wearing helmets. They would have been wearing helmets. He didn't want to show them an helmet. There was also the point about the, the the town of Dunkirk, which you only told briefly, but not being beaten up enough, which I, I think is true. But then, you know, the director doesn't particularly like to use, or doesn't at all like to use CGI, and he wasn't going to bomb the the actual town, um, and and then the numbers of soldiers on the beaches, which, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people said beaches weren't messy enough, they weren't crowded enough, and again, there's some truth to that, but you've got to be careful with this because, I mean, you look at this two ways. I mean, first of all. Um, In fact, he did, you know, he, again, doesn't use CGI, but he did use a thousand local people, local, you know, young people dressed in uniforms and, and he, you know, used them actually a lot on, on the beaches. So, you know, he made them as crowded as conceivably he could, I think. But then the other point is they weren't always crowded. And we tend to think of you know, there's, there's this idea of the the evacuation as being a certain thing. The story is one certain thing, and the, and the truth is that, like all history, like all stories, like everything that's happened in the past, there is not one story. And if you look at the accounts of of different, you know, as I have looked over the years at many many accounts and talked to many many veterans, and yes, there were points when the beaches were absolutely cluttered and crowded, and there were queues, and the queues disappear when. There's, and the dive bombers came over and then reappear and But there were also periods, and bear in mind also, you've got 10 miles of beaches. You've got this evacuation happening for, for days and days and days. You've got hundreds of thousands of people coming and going, coming and going. So there is no one story. The whole world was on the beaches. And there were periods when there weren't many people at particular places. And in fact, they were empty at particular places at different times. different and, and there were times when the sun was shining and people were having a great time. There was a man telling me about a circus performer um, who was on, found a horse and on the back of a horse and performing tricks. And men were all lying in the sunshine, clapping and and cheering as this man, you know, performed on a horse, which is not our picture of what Dunkirk was actually like. And, uh, you know, there, there were times, and another man told me, you know, I had horror stories of people coming on the beaches after days of evacuation, terrible physical states and hungry and, and hadn't eaten for days and one man who sort of sunk to his knees and took his helmet off and started to try and eat the leather strap on his helmet because his imagination couldn't go anywhere he was so hungry and he didn't know what what he could you know his mind just focused in on the first thing it focused in on and another story of some of you watching a group of men all sitting around in a circle or miming eating with a imaginary knife fork and just, you know, it was, they couldn't get any food, but this was the, the closest they could come. And they were all sort of engaged in this, in this sort of shared pantomime that it was deadly serious. But on the other hand, I, 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 I got the story of these three Royal Engineers who came off, you know, the, off the retreat and came onto the, the beach and found there were no boats coming in. So they went back out I don't think beyond the perimeter. I think within the perimeter. But they found an establishment, like a bar, cafe, open. And this was during the evacuation. They said not only was it open, they were able to buy a bottle of champagne, which they drank. These were ordinary Englishmen, you know, wouldn't have touched champagne before in their lives. And they drank it, and they decided they loved it, Have more of their lives with finished it, went back onto the beach. A boat came in, took them off, um, took them up to something bigger off, offshore, and, and home they went. Again, not the typical Dunkirk story. But my point is simply that there was no one story, and there never is. And we're making a mistake to think that there, you know, there is only one story. And, and so it was, um, you know, there was good behavior, there was bad behavior, there were people standing order, in orderly lines in queues, and then there were also people jumping queues, and a couple of accounts of people being shot when they tried to jump the queue to get on little boats. And So, you know, there was everything going there's a man who found an ambulance and just just got in it and stayed for days inside in his own little bubble, in, you know, on at the top of the beach inside this this ambulance, and then sort of tried to shut the rest of the world out and pretend nothing else was happening. So there's no one story, and and equally, there's no one picture of the
0: beach that is correct. So that's an incredibly long way of saying I give it a B plus. I mean, movies are entertainment, right? And you, and as filmmakers, you have to choose which stories you're going to focus on, and so it makes sense that I mean, yeah, there's if there's no one story you're going to have to choose, and no matter what you choose, there are going to be some people that aren't going to like what you cho- what you didn't pick, or you know, in, in that way, what stories you didn't tell. I mean, because you can't tell everything; They only have so much time.
1: You talk to veterans. It's always very interesting talking to veterans because they they will have had their experience. And very often they are not willing to accept the experience of another veteran who had a different experience. You know, yeah. you're, so, you you know, you're, you're obviously you're not you're never rude to, you know, I, or I wouldn't, I would never sort of contradict a veteran, but you had to be aware that somebody who had lived through something, to them, that was the, the truth of the matter. That was the reality of the matter. And if you put somebody else's reality to them, they would sometimes just say, no, no, i Except that that didn't happen, and that you know we all we're all like that. I mean, we all, you know, you go into into a, a court and watch a case over a traffic accident, and you know you 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 say what you saw, and that won't be the same as what the person thirty feet away saw. and um, it's just that's that's it's how how it is, and so you know, you it's actually quite fascinating when you do speak to you know, large numbers of people and try and get a sense of what it was from so many different accounts. And it becomes something far more interesting and, and far less cliched, really, than, you know, what it might otherwise have, become, uh, uh, have turned into over time.
0: At the beginning of the movie, there is some text that explains the British and French armies have been driven to the sea. That kind of sets up the, them being trapped at Dunkirk, kind of hoping for the miracle. But other than the text, the movie just kind of throws us into that story, which makes sense. I mean, it's, it's about that story. Uh, but can you expand a little bit more on the historical side to kind of set that up? You know, why, why were the British and the French armies surrounded by the Germans at Dunkirk?
1: Just before I do, it might be interesting. I, I happen to have a kind of talker I once gave. I, 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 mean, I don't want to speak for the director, but, I, I, you know, he, 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 he didn't want to use too much dialogue. And so one thing that, I think he found it useful. I told him about the um, leaflets that the Germans dropped, and you know, all, all sides dropped propaganda leaflets. But the Germans dropped these; these are these are copies of the of, of the real leaflet. and it's not the scale. I mean, it's much bigger than the actual leaflet. But it, this is what he put in at the beginning, except he didn't put in the actual. I mean, you can see, let's say, British soldiers look at this map. It gives your true situation, your troops are entirely surrounded. Stop fighting. Put down your arms.
0: Real quick, let me mention if you're listening to this and you want to see what Joshua is holding up to the camera, you can see that in the video version of this chat over at youtube.com slash based on a true story podcast.
1: And what he turned into for the purposes of the right at the top of the film was this, which you can see, I mean, it, it filmically, it's great because it cuts out the need for a lot of clunky dialogue about where are we? You We're know, here. Why are we? You know, it's, you know, you, we surround you. And actually, in reality, when I spoke to veterans, I mean, they said that, you know, this thing was useful for, and I mean, can you put this in, for two for two reasons. One, they didn't have the toilet paper. But two, also, they didn't have maps. And the Germans got a map. And it was really, you know, this is this is great, thanks. I mean, yeah. So anyway, so that that's, and that kind of preempts the, the story. But basically, the, I mean, the British Expeditionary Force had arrived in France right at the beginning of the war, within days, started arriving within days of the beginning of the war. You had all of these young men whose fathers and uncles and relatives and you know older men they knew had been out there just a generation previously to these you know, same place. Um, So it was a kind of, here we go again. And they came to France. They didn't move into Belgium. Belgium was, even though the attack was expected to come, the Germans were expected to attack through Belgium, were expected to come into Belgium. But the Belgians didn't want the Allies to set foot in Belgium because they didn't want to provoke the Germans into attacking, even though expected the Germans would attack anyway. They didn't want to actually, you know, Lay out the carpet for them by provoking. So the the British Expeditionary Force remained in France, and then for, for months, what was known as well, the Americanism was the the, the phony, war. but I think the British knew it more as the at the time as the the bore, the you know, on the boar. Um, B O R E, as in there was nothing happening. But actually, they, you know, they were quite a lot of. If you think about it, these young British men never been abroad before very very few have been abroad before and they'd been brought up during the depression and the army gave them regular meals and income uh, and now adventure and they were, they were actually going abroad to see how you know how other people you know what abroad was like uh and and they stay you know in fact to show that they enjoyed i mean i found a there was a, a, a battalion of the of the middlesex regiment that um uh was started misbehave and was told that if you this was in November December of 1940, and told that if you don't start behaving, we're sending you back to England. And they started behaving, They cut it. They cut out the dark They wanted to stay. And so they, the 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 idea was that the you know the expectation was there would be a German attack, Um, through Belgium, the the the, the British and the French would move up to meet uh, the, the the Germans in Belgium, and there would be kind of a repeat of the First World War, a, a war sort of mud and trenches and and, and 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 not a great deal of movement. And the French also had this large uh, called, something called the Maginot Line, which was a series of fortifications, really heavily uh, defended fortifications, along the border with Germany. And the the French French cry was, you know, the pass on par, they will not pass," um, because they believed it was completely impregnable; they wouldn't come through. And what the Germans did, uh, which was very audacious, and and Hitler basically signed off on this and, and and maybe you know you could argue that his part of his hubris was a result of the success of this and why he never again doubted himself um was that they they did indeed attack into Belgium, and the British came forward to meet them on the river deal and two sides met, but at the same time that was only a feint really by the Germans a real attack was um was coming through the Ardennes, which is a a hilly area, a a heavily forested area, an area that, in theory, was impassable to tanks. So the Germans didn't try and get past the the Maginola. The Illini pass on, Bar. they didn't pass. They didn't try. They came instead through the Ardennes, and it wasn't defended properly by by the French, and the Germans just amazingly sort Mm of shot through. And by the 20th of May, German tanks had reached the French coast and so almost surrounded completely surrounded the, the um, British Expeditionary Force, which found itself then retreating and so the retreat started sort of piecemeal so from one river line you know from Deal to the River Esco and, and fighting on all these you know heavy fighting on all these uh, these lines and then as the retreat went further back the British were setting up um, defended areas, so first of all along the corridors, so defending canals and defending um defendable areas so that the germans couldn't couldn't get through and further back further back until eventually they were they found themselves and with along with the French as well, both british and French were defending the perimeter uh, around Dunkirk as the evacuation moved further back and you had a situation where the british actually did mount a A a counterattack on the twenty-first of May. So the the main attack came. The attack began on the tenth of May. By the twentieth of May, the the Germans had had reached the coast. The British then mounted this uh, counterattack at Arras, which was surprisingly successful, and actually really spooked the Germans, who really only saved the day because Rom, you know, the the legendary Rom. This is where he kind of made his name, if you like. It took personal control, and uh, basically beat off the British attack. But it was sufficiently successful that it made the Germans very nervous that you know, another counterattack in force could you know, ev- effectively cut off the panzer tanks so that we were to the coast. Because the tanks, if you think about it, you know, they, they were now in, in quite a bad mechanical state. They got way ahead of the infantry, way ahead of their supplies. They were coming to you know, the area around Dunkirk, which was marshy anyway, there wouldn't be much use in Dunkirk. The Germans thought a bigger fight was still coming to the south of the Somme. They thought there was, you know, a big fight against the French uh, was, was still coming, and so they stopped the tanks or um, well, did first of all stopped the tanks, and then that order was confirmed by Hitler, and that confirmation had quite a lot to do with Hermann Goering, basically making contact with Hitler and saying, "Don't let." Don't let the generals win this. The generals will take credit for it, and they will be right. They will end up as rivals to you. They they are not solidly Nazi. Um, they will create trouble. Whereas if you let the Luftwaffe, we've been we've been loyal to you from the very beginning. If you let us, we can defeat the British. So so let us do it. Um, and that was a, a one major reason why Hitler confirmed that halting the tanks order. Which lasted for, for three days and gave the British uh, a great opportunity to be able to move um, more and more and more people back through the corridors and, and
0: into Dunkirk. It's fascinating to me when you mentioned that initially these British expeditionary forces are, are going abroad and the punishment is going home. Just how quickly the tables turn.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, it's, it's a very quick story, actually. It's, 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 um, it is, it, is, it is sort of remarkable. I mean, it's quite, very slow in terms of the, the Boer War, or the phony war. But then suddenly everything happened. You know, people, were, you know, why aren't they attacking? I mean, I think Churchill's view for a lot of this time, you know, why aren't they attacking? Do they have, you know, ha, 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 is something extraordinary going to happen? Are they suddenly, is Hitler suddenly going to launch some kind of, you know, utterly terrifying, perhaps, um, uh, you know, aerial attack on, On Britain, or you know, what 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 is it going to be? And what it did turn out to be was this audacious, you know, attack through through the Ardennes, which which almost gave a you know an an immediate victory. And the British soldiers didn't know why they were retreating. You know, they found. I mean, I think initially a lot of them. If you talk to them, a lot of them said that they, you know, they thought maybe their own unit had done something wrong and was. You know being in fact for some reason, or maybe there'd been a, an attack you know nearby, and they were having to fall back to creep you know to keep a line um but but you know at first, they certainly didn't know that you know what had happened, but I mean not the commanders didn't really know what was happening at first. it was chaos. And one thing I should probably mention is that the man who made the decision to retreat into Dunkirk and then Evacuate was was really was was Lord Gore, who was the commander in chief of the British Expeditionary Force and he's not a man who gets much credit he wasn't a very imaginative man really a very brave man, but he and he you know he ended up being sort of shunted off to I think he became governor of Gibraltar after after this, and, um, but he made that I think as early as the nineteenth of May you know he was aware you know it was a distinct possibility that they were going to have to go all the way back to Dunkirk and. And you know, by the twenty fifth, he he'd made the decision that this was going to happen. They were going to have to save as many as possible of the British Expeditionary Force through this evacuation. And this was at a point, bear in mind, when you know, back in London, the generals back in London, certainly Churchill was still talking about, you know, no, no, you must stay and you must fight and you must mount counterattacks with the French. We cannot afford to lose to leave France. We can't afford to lose the French and. And all this kind of thing. And, and, and it was Gort who very bravely sort of overrode this and said, no, no, we go back now. And that's how, you know, the, the, I am spoiling anything by saying that's how the British Expeditionary Force was saved. My goodness me, the war would have taken a different turn. I mean, the work today, live, would have taken a different turn. It's, you know, it's when a butterfly flaps its wings
0: and, 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 and Lord Gort made that decision. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, EarnIn. In In the beginning of the movie, there's a character named Mr. Dawson, uh, along with his son, Peter, and their friend, George. And we see a couple men from the Navy who requisition Mr. Dawson's boat. It's a private yacht and they're asked to, you know, empty everything out of the boat, load up a bunch of life jackets. We don't really hear uh, exactly what the Navy men told them, but all we know through some dialogue is they're told that some men across the English channel at Dunkirk need taking off. They don't seem to know a lot about what's going on either, but they're, they're being asked how how well did the movie do showing what it was like for the citizens kind of preparing to go across the channel?
1: There were ordinary citizens who did take their own boats and did go across, but not many. Uh, you know, there the, the were, for example, there was a the senior surviving officer on the Titanic, from the Titanic, uh, Michael Lightover, you know, went across in his own boat and stuff. And, you know, the, I don't know if you've seen the film Mrs. Miniver, 1941 British film. There's a Dunkirk scene, which, a guy, just an ordinary guy, Mrs. Miller's husband, jumped in his boat, comes back three days later with the beard shattered, and that's you know that's a film made I think a year, just a year after. So there was a story that developed, that lots of ordinary people got in boat, and a few did, but really what happened, for the most part, was that the navy requisitioned boats, and it took them out of boatyards along the Thames or on the south coast. People didn't know that their boats had been taken. Some did know and didn't know why their boats were being taken. One man I found who, you know, thought his boat was being stolen and chased it up to the bluffs, and then so ne- naval ratings ended up taking these boats across. In, in some cases, it would have been better if the owners had taken them across because the owners knew how they worked, whereas the naval ratings often, you know, wrecked them. So, I mean, I think the re- the reality of the story, and also fishermen, you know, a lot of fishermen did take their own boats. And um, and non-members of the navy took their boats, ended up s- signing a form that made them temporary members of the Royal Navy. Um, it was called what It was a T one T- two 1- 2- four, I think. And it was a form they signed, and so for a, a month, I think they they were members of the they were considered um, members of the Royal Navy. Um, so people did you know, people did sign this form, people did did, did go across the but for the most part. Um, it was, it was the navy who took these boats across, and you've got to remember that these little, known as the little ships, which started to come across in big numbers on the thirtieth and thirty-first, they were really needed for taking people off the, off the beaches to take them to the larger ships offshore. So at the beginning, the ama- i mean, it is an amazing—the the, the story is amazing. You had these. You know, people had, were congregating in the, the town of Dunkirk in the cellars and the, the Luftwaffe were bombing. So as a result of what Goering had said, you know, because the Luftwaffe really weren't, reality is that they weren't capable of doing what Goering said, told you what know, they, they could do. Maybe if the weather had stayed, had been different and there was no cloud cover and, you know, da, 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 then and, and their tactics had been slightly different and they, you know, bombed Dover and Ramsgate and this, something else. You know, maybe it would have, been, but the fact is, they weren't. As things stood, they weren't capable of really doing. And what they did, the sort of success was to bomb the harbour, the town, and the harbour, and it put the inner harbour pretty much out of action. I mean, completely out of action, actually. And so you had this uh, a man called William Tennant, who was a senior naval officer ashore at Dunkirk, who had to make this. Well, he he had all these people, all these men, all these soldiers in Dunkirk. More were pouring in, and the harbour was out of action. So, how was he going to get? How were people going to get back to Dover, back to Ramsgate, back to Britain? And um, what he did, the whole, because the whole thing you got to understand was a kind of constant improvisation—you know, constantly having to make it up on the girl. And what he did, what I think was the sort of the, the greatest improvisation of all of anything happened. He saw these two big, sort of outer arms, the outer harbour. There's two arms that went a mile out to sea, the the west mole and the east mole. And they weren't jetties; they were basically big arms to stop the harbour silting up. And they did have wooden walkways on the top of them, but that you know they also had large railings alongside. It was just that people could walk out there. They weren't meant as jetties. They had huge tidal drops. I don't know, 14, 15 feet tidal drops. They had. On that, you know, no one had ever brought a ship alongside. Tenant looked at the situation. He, you know, he he, people from the har from the um, the harbor from the town would moved onto the beaches. But at this point, early on in the evacuation, there weren't any well sufficient little boats to bring people from the beach to the larger ships, which were starting to come. So, you had large destroyers, naval destroyers, naval minesweepers, you had ferries, uh, um, passenger ships. But there was no way for them to come inshore and no way for the men to get out to them. So, and there weren't yet enough little ships. They, you know, all went out for them. But so what he decided to do was to use these molds, these huge breakwaters, specifically for the British, the East Break, the East Mold. Um, and he sent people, or soldiers, up them. And he he brought um, a passenger ship alongside, and on that first night, night of twenty eight, you know he got almost a, a thousand people off, and he he realised this is this is what we've got to do, and so the majority of soldiers actually got off using those breakwaters over the course of the vast majority over the course of the the, the evacuation. So it's an amazing story of of improvisation, um, and again, I mean I think that came across pretty well in the film
0: another perspective we get from the film is in the air and it it starts with there's uh, three british airplanes one of them, kind of the, the main pilot of farriers he talks about how they have 70 gallons of fuel uh, over the radio they're s- told to stay low to allow for 40 minutes of fighting time over dunkirk uh, but also make sure to keep an eye on the on the Fuel so you can have enough gas to get back, uh, and not to skip ahead in the timeline of the movie necessarily. But there are bits of dialogue throughout where the soldiers on the beaches are just wondering where where are our planes to fight off the Germans as as they're coming in and, and bombing the beaches. So the impression that I got was uh, from the movie that there wasn't a huge RAF presence in the air to protect the soldiers at Dunkirk, or at least not that they could see in you know, the areas that we were watching in the movie. Is that a red impression to walk away from the movie with, of the RAF's role at Dunkirk?
1: I think you've got the impression the film intended to, to convey, which is the accurate one, which is that the, the soldiers and sailors didn't think the RAF were there. You know, they were really angry. This is the way stories work. I mean, you've got Dunk. The truth is that at at Dunkirk, the soldiers and sailors were furious to the point that when RAF people either crash-landed or for whatever reason were trying to get off at Dunkirk with the soldiers, often they weren't allowed on or they had to change their clothes to pretend they weren't RAF. People were so angry with them for not being there. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we're just talking weeks later. You've got the Battle of Britain. And they became heroes. How quick you things turn! Wow. <laughs> but then, what we've also forgotten is that after that, I mean, I, I've got, I, I found a story in in Guy Gibson, who was the, the dam busters, uh, in his autobiography about he was a night fighter again after the Battle of Britain. So during the Blitz in November of nineteen forty, and he's uh, in London, dressed he's a night fighter, so flying against the bombers during the German bombers during the Blitz, and he's in London one night in his uniform down in a shelter whilst the bombing is going on up above and people start turning against him and people are shouting at him saying why aren't you up there getting those you know and he said it was so intimidating that he would rather get out of the shelter and take his chances against the bombs because he thought people were about to attack him down in the shelter so this is the reality is that it's again it's not you know it's waves people but the point is to get back to Dunkirk. the point is yes the soldiers are angry at the RAF but the RAF also there. They were doing absolutely as much as they felt they could do, and as much as they could. And the fact is that they, you know, they shot the RAF shot down more German aircraft than the Germans shot down RAF aircraft. They really were there, but there were also extremely good reasons why they weren't seen. There was quite a few reasons. I mean, you know, so Fighter Command, for example, started employing very large formations of two to four squadrons at, at a time. And with the limited squadron resources available, that meant there were periods where there were gaps in the RAF's umbrella. So it added to their success rate, but it also meant that there really, you know, the RAF really was absent for periods of time. It it was there, but it was absent for periods. But then also, you have lots of, you know, first of all, they were flying high for the most part, twenty thousand feet, because they wanted to be, you know, above the Germans. So that meant that they couldn't be seen. They also they were trying to intercept the Germans before they got to the beaches. though so a lot of the times they weren't even over the you know, seen over the beaches. What's the point of being over the beaches once the Germans are already there? You've got the Germans had air observers behind Dunkirk, so they could call aircraft up to come into the battle zone. Um so, you know, for that reason, sometimes the bombers did show up when the the RAF weren't there. You had uh anti-aircraft guns for the period they were there firing at everything so the troops would look up and see everything being fired at assuming everything was enemy when in fact you know some of them weren't enemy and there was cloud cover for part of the time there were lots of reasons i mean they were lucky it was cloud cover um because you know that meant that the that, that the germans couldn't bomb um and that, you know Stukas couldn't come down and 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 do their bombing from 1,500 feet. So there were lots and lots of very good reasons why the British couldn't see the RAF, even though they were there and doing an unbelievably important job. And bear in mind, there were very good reasons why not all of the, the fighter command was being used because the British knew, doubting, knew that the bigger fight was going to come. I mean, that, you know, that they were going to be needed to defend. I mean, the Battle of Britain, Nobody objects to the fact that the, the RAF fighter command was was strong during the Battle of Britain, and the, you know the, the fact was they couldn't commit too much to Dunkirk because they had to reserve strength for their Battle of Britain fight for Britain. Because the, the fact is that you know for the Germans to come across, they were going to have to win control of the air, and and that battle of the fighters, uh, the of the Germans coming over and 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 the British fighters over the south of England was, you know, a
0: fight for Britain. Yeah, I mean, you can't predict the future, but I mean, you know that what would be next, there's the big battle coming next. And so you want to make sure that you have.
1: They hope there was a big battle coming next. I mean, it, you know, it, it could have been that the, the British army was was finished off there. If the British army had been finished off there and then, it's very hard to see any other result than Britain having to sue for peace and then. Again, we're in that situation where what, where would we be now? And and um, the whole German ethos would have bled throughout Europe. Britain wouldn't been there to to defend, you know, liberty, freedom, the rule of law, etc., etc. Where would the second, you know, even if America joined the war, where would the second front have come from? These are all big, big. It's why you know Dunkirk is. But for me, Dunk, it's interesting. Well, I was in Dunkirk quite recently, you know, and and I hadn't been there since before lockdown, and I was speaking to one of the guides, and he was saying that the Americans are now coming. It's part of the the tour for Americans. Americans are now coming to Dunkirk. They never used to come to Dunkirk. So if this film is done any, it's to increase awareness of the fact that Dunkirk wasn't just the little prosaic British bit um, that happened before America got involved. It was really unbelievably important in the whole bigger picture of the war. So yeah, I mean that, that in a way that was the most important effect of the film I think, to me to make people across the world aware that that, that Dunkirk wasn't this just this little localized British fight um, that was passing time before America got involved and and it's also really interesting you know you, you look I've looked at sort of the reaction that the film has had in different countries so for example I, I was reading that in China it was not a popular film because it's not about a victory. And you know, Chinese market apparently, you know, um, a film about well, at least a, a defeat, is <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you know, it, it just nobody's interested in watching that. But it was so much more than anything. It was it was you know this miracle of deliverance, which is not putting it too strong. That made victory possible.
0: There is a moment in the movie where uh, the, the British soldiers are lined up along the mole uh, trying to get onto the ship dock there. And we see some French soldiers coming on and they're turned away. One of the one of the British soldiers flat out says, this is a British ship. You have your own ships. Uh, and at the very end of the movie, one of the final lines is after the, the British are rescued, Commander Bolton mentions that he's staying behind to help the French. Can you clarify a little more like were the French not allowed passage on the ships or on, on the British ships until all the British were evacuated? I don't think it was a rule. I
1: think, it, but I think it did happen. Um, I think the French didn't know for a long time that the the British were evacuating. They realised that they were breathing. but uh, it's probably fair to say that the Germans land before the French did. The British were were, were evacuating, and that was one reason. And let's face it, it was a pretty valid reason why the French, or you know, considerable grudge against the the British, and also that you know the French did defend the perimeter. And it is true; the French were, you know, some French were not allowed onto British ships. But it's also true that as the evacuation went on, more and more French were being allowed onto British ships and were uh, were being evacuated back to Britain. And then it's also true to say that Churchill made trips across to Paris during the evacuation, and at one he was asked how many. French were, were, were being evacuated, and he had to admit it wasn't many um, at that point. And he, he said that our, from this point, they will go bras dessous, bras dessous, arm in arm from this point. And the last part of the evacuation was mostly French, Belgians, others. So, somewhere between 100,000 and 120,000 French out of 338,000 in total were evacuated. So, it's a really large number of French. Did come back ultimately. It's uh, again like so many of these things, just you know, on the one hand, on the other hand. Yes, French people were, I think that that is true. The French were prevented and certainly in the early stages from, uh, from coming on ships, but, but at the same time, overall, very, very large numbers of French were evacuated
0: back to Britain. There's another conversation in the movie um, with uh, Colonel Winnett and Commander Bolton. They're on the mole and they hear gunfire in the distance. Then Germans are broken through the dunes in the east when it says, this is it. And A few moments later, uh, Bolton looks through his binoculars, and what do you see? And Bolton replies, "Home." And, and you know, a very cinematic moment. You see a, a ton of the, the small ships uh, arriving on the shores of Dunkirk. Heroic music swells, uh, and then there the reception is. You know, military ships are blaring their sirens, boats are hu- blowing their horns, the soldiers on the decks are cheering. Uh, it seems like there's this moment of, oh, you know, the the rescue is here. Was there was there this moment of like? There's this rescue, oh, we're going to be saved in in, in that way? Actually, funny enough,
1: even though that seems completely cinematic and unlikely, there was a moment when the convoy, the sort of armada of small ships, came, you know, was first spotted en masse. And I think for a, a lot of people seeing that, it really was genuinely a sort of, you know, fantastic moment of, like, oh, my God, we may be all right. So again, so there is some truth you know there were, there were breakthroughs at different points. Um, the Germans did break through in different spots the perimeter, and, and you know, so the eastern end of the beaches the, in Belgium, La Panne, De Panne, uh, you know that the, the, the perimeter shrunk as time went went by, and so by the end, you know, by by the very end of the, the evacuation, the Germans were very very close, and you know they were shelling. I mean, you know, from outside the perimeter to 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 inside, and 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 the routes that the, the boats had to take, the ships had to take when they were coming into Dunkirk. You know, depending on where the Germans had placed their guns, you know, they, they were sometimes unsafe because they could be shelled from the shore, so they had to change the routes they they took. So again, all this is to a degree true, and and I think that you know the. the the flotilla of little ships did appear, and did you know cause a lot of people to, to sort of think, well, yeah, you know, maybe we, we can get away." So again, it's not you know, it's it's not fantasy; it's a film, but it's not. I mean, I doubt anyone you know used those precise words. Hold, oh. I bet,
0: but you know, maybe they did. What about the timing of it? Because it seems like oh, the Germans had broken through the dunes and the impression I got was, oh, okay, they're, like, they're about to attack the beaches, basically. And then you see the, the rescue start to happen. Was it really that close of a call there like that?
1: I think the, you know, the, they, they were, when the evacuation ended, you know, on the, on the 4th of June, they were really close. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, to a degree, it's not, the thing is, it is absolutely true that it was a really really close-run thing. So, you know, Churchill was hoping at the beginning of the evacuation that 30,000 people would get away. I think Ramsey, who was um, in Dover, in the the Dynamo room at Dover Castle orchestrating the evacuation, hence Operation Dynamo, thought 45,000. You know, these... And and Churchill was often a very optimistic, you know, could had bouts of extreme optimism at times and pessimism, but you know he he thought thirty thousand would be would be a good figure, and that the actual figure was you know three hundred and thirty eight. So it really was amazing. I mean, it truly. I mean, he, you know, again, often Churchill allowed language to run away with him, but to call it a miracle of deliverance is not untrue what's a mirror but i mean it's not a gross exaggeration put it that way and you know if you look at that speech that churchill made made on the night of the fourth um you know fight them on the beaches fight them on the landing ground it's an amazing speech because he's there's so much honesty in it he talks about a military disaster having taken place he's not he's not sugarcoating and he's talking you know he's Speaking on so many levels at once, he's trying to bolster the French, he's trying to bolster his own people, but he's admitting, he's saying, the Germans are coming and we're going to have to fight them on the beaches, on the landing routes, guerrilla warfare, they're coming. Um, And he's calling out to the Americans, calling out to the new world when all its power and might will come to the deliverance of the old. So he finishes. And he's saying to the American, my God, we need you. You know, when, we, we, where, please, please come in. But again, he's not, you know, he, call, he talks about this miracle of deliverance, but he says wars are not won by evacuations. It's a pretty honest speech. There was a lot that Churchill did try and cover up at different times and no point going into all that. But this speech, talking to the, the British people and the French and the Americans and others, it's pretty
0: blunt. According to the movie, when I talked earlier about uh, Mr. Dawson and, and his yacht that he's taking across, uh, throughout the movie, we, we see him going across the channel, but um, he goes across, it's daytime. And then he, when he comes back to Britain, it's dark. And so the impression I got there was he just went across once and then came back. Was that the case? Like they just went across once and, and back?
1: Oh, it absolutely depends on who you're talking about. Yeah, the big ships went again and again and again and again the naval ships and the um some only went once and then would bombed and destroyed. I mean something like a third of the ships that took part in the evacuation were either sunk or put out of action. You have the little ships whose job like I say, those small ships, their job was not to go across and bring people back. Their job was really to take people from the beaches to the larger ships ashore. So they would stay there, going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And then of course at the end they'd come back and they'd probably have some people on board, but you know, their job was not specifically to take large groups of people, so it all depended. Some ships did it multiple times, so, for example, last time I was out there, I had dinner on in Dunkirk. There's this floating restaurant called The Princess Elizabeth, which is one of the Dunkirk ships. It's a paddle steamer that could take you know several hundred soldiers at once. What it really is, it's a paddle so it was one of those, uh, like a small version of what went up and down the Mississippi. But but the its job was to take tourists from the south coast, Southampton, to the Isle of Wight. And it was called into action, and it ended up doing this. And it made four trips, and in total it brought home 14, 15, 1,600 men, something like that. And then a very similar ship, although bigger, was the. I've got a picture of this somewhere. It's the other paddle steamer that's in, still in Dunkirk, uh, and it's called Crested Eagle. And it was on the mole one day when the snookers came in and came down, and it managed to get away. Uh, and it came parallel to the shore, and then it was attacked again by snookers, which hit it this time. And the, the, the captain brought it, tried to beach it, brought it inshore, and it sunk. And 300 or so people were killed,
0: died, on board, and, and that's it now, um, if you can see it. Let me jump in real quick here again and just mention for the audio version, if you're listening to this, you want to see the photo that Joshua has. You can see that in the video version of this chat over at youtube.com slash based on a true story podcast.
1: Still in, Dunker. And it's, you know, it's almost the same. It's bigger. But it's almost the same as the Princess Elizabeth, um, but one is a restaurant serving food, and the other one is visible at low tide, and it's the most graphic sort of comparison. And the Princess Elizabeth also, you know, it's the years of it's the Diamond Jubilee. Princess Elizabeth—it's called the Princess Elizabeth because it was built in 1926 when the current Queen was born, so it was named after her. You know, months after her birth, and it was launched in 1927. And so they're both, you know, touch, wood, still doing well. One, one celebrating a uh, diamond jubilee and the other one serving dinner.
0: Towards the end of the movie, after the men are rescued, the movie follows some of the soldiers on the train you were t- we were talking about earlier. Uh, they arrive at uh, Woking Station and one of the soldiers mentions how he just assumes the reaction is going to be that people are going to be spitting at them in the streets because of this, they had to retreat. It suggests that they feel... Like they've let their nation down. But instead, the reaction that they get is either greeted, they're handed beers, and everybody just seems happy that they're alive. What was the reaction to the returning soldiers after the rescue?
1: I think that's very accurate. I mean, you, you know, the, of the people I spoke to and the, the accounts that I came across, I mean, I think a lot of them felt that they were the sort of, I could put it, the, the battered remnants of a defeated army. And, and, um, and they came back completely expecting no welcome at all, just to, and and they found that they were treated a lot of them were treated as heroes. And they were you know, people were cheering them and slapping them on the back and giving them sandwiches as they came in and buying them drinks in pubs and 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 it was I mean, I suppose what that was was a kind of you know, people often talk about Dunkirk spirit, it's a thing, Dunkirk Spirit, that's sort of come down to us. It's often slated and, you know, it's used in every sort of you know, during Brexit on both sides, people were talking, talking. Never mind that, forget all that. What the instinctive Dunkirk spirit was a kind of relief that, first of all, Uncle Bill is home, relatives, and friends are, are coming home, they're here. But beyond that, that the country is still fighting, that, you know, that, 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 that we're not finished. And I think there was a real outpouring. If you look at the mass observation, mass observation of this organization, that, would ordinary people kept diaries and they went to different places to 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 look at the sort of social the sort of anthropologists looking at Britain at the time. And it noted that there was a lot of immense relief. People, you know, suddenly buoyed by the fact that countries still still fighting. So there was this instinctive sense of relief. I think that was then taken up by the authorities who were trying to instill a sort of sense of that what we are still in this was, and that was you know, so there were broadcasts on the radio and JB. Priestley, the playwright, novelists, you know broadcasting, you know, trying to instill this the sense in people, and newspapers were doing it. and but but I think also, you know the country, if if you look at all sorts of other things in the literally days after Dunkirk, factory hours went up, people were putting more time in. And, and sleeping in the factories and you know getting getting more done in in the furtherance of getting the war you know people keeping this going you having government they're, they're still talking in, in the days weeks after Dunkirk they're talking about the government is actually discussing war aims, which is made you know what, what are we fighting and that's pretty amazing, considering you know what what's actually happening and the fact is you know you've got these members of the government you know real old, Lord Halifax and these, these fantastic old dinosaurs um, who are discussing, you know, how, what are we fighting for? And the fact that, you know, people are going to have to have more consideration for each other now. and that, you know, financial gain isn't the be all and end all anymore. They, they were genuinely talking about it. It's quite a big sort of change shift in emphasis. And so, you know, I think this, you know, like I say, Dunkirk spirit is, 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 is to some degree imposed by the authorities but to a great degree was absolutely organic and it came out of this yeah we're still going and we can still keep going and what is it that we're actually fighting for and you find that a lot of things that we take granted in this country now education and, and the national health service and things that came in at the end of the war or after the war had their roots at this time when we suddenly when people suddenly started looking around and who are we? Why are we fighting? What do we stand for as opposed to what they stand for? So I think this just little period is is really important in the sort of social and cultural story of the war from a British perspective.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the impression I get from, from that is they, they're going abroad to, you know, to see abroad, right? They, even though there's there's war going on. And now all of a sudden they've basically been snapped into, OK, this is a war. What are we what are we fighting for? What is this is serious?
1: Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, and of course these things, you know, in reality, these things do, you know, turn around quickly and, and, and attitudes and reactions do change very quickly. And, you know, it's all very well to talk about this, you know, this shift, this Stanford experience. That doesn't mean it lasts forever. These changes in atmosphere, changes in attitudes, changes in expectations, you know, these can all happen very quickly. You know, like we were talking about the attitude to the RAF. Um, you know, people can you know, Dunkirk's very blitz spirit, but these things change. And people who's, you know, one minute, you know, are seeing the world and, and their place in it in a particular way can relatively quickly stop seeing, seeing it in a completely different way. You know, we're talking about in, in relation to, look at the way we all look at Ukraine at the moment. And there's there's a sense, well, the States, but there's a sense in Britain that, you know, we're, we are all looking at it in a particular way, and we're all, you know, very, very interested in Ukraine going. But there's also a, a realization that things can, you know, if, if this war goes on for a long period of time, people can, to put it bluntly, horrible, people can get bored, and people can start looking elsewhere, and people can forget, you know, how keen they were to support to support Ukraine um, at, at, at an early stage, attitudes do change um, in a relatively short period of time towards things that we think are immensely important in the short term. So in the same way, you know, attitudes towards, attitudes that were changed by Dunkirk could change back very quickly. People could, you know, by blitz spirit was another thing which was organic and was real, I believe, but it, it didn't necessarily last that you've got to be aware of this, that when when, when you're looking at at reactions and and people's attitudes, they're not carved in stone. Just like the, you know, the the RAF was hated and loved. These things change.
0: Throughout the movie, some of the characters that we've talked about, uh, Farrier, uh, Mr. Dawson, uh, Tommy and Gibson on on the beach, um, were these characters based on real people or were they amalgamations to tell the overall story?
1: They were amalgamations, I think it's fair to say. They, I mean, there were real... So, you know, the story of Honor, for example, was definitely something that the director was aware of. And there were so many stories, real stories, that were out there that he found or I found, you know, went into the mix. I think, they, I think it's right to say they were amalgams. Um, there was no real need to take anybody's story. You know, um, and in the same way, the naval officers were, you know, in, in, inspired by different people that they, you know, that were part of the real story. But there's no way that anybody was um, representing a particular person. So it wasn't my film, but I suspect, you know, to, to to make anybody too close to to to, to the real person is almost a liberty. It, 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 in the end, the story is a fiction based in a real in a real theater and, and um, to tie one character down to reality would, would not be fair. Or not.
0: We have talked about some of the impressions that I got while watching the movie, um, but I think everyone walking away from a movie gets different impressions from the story that was told. So what's something that you want to make sure that someone watching this movie walks away with?
1: Well, I suppose I've already said it, really, that what I'd like anybody who sees the movie to be at least aware that there's no one story, and there never is. You know, history, the world, life, doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. There's so many interesting dramas nowadays that focus on, i just, just say this, I've just been watching it, there's an American series called This Is Us. It takes a family. And looks at them over a period of years and goes backwards and forwards and it plays with time and it plays with Christian Nolan famously plays with time. Um, but it looks at the same event from different people's perspective, and you realize it does it well because you realize we don't see things different. we don't see things the same we, we, we all interpret everything differently and and, and and the real story is different if depending on when, what time and where you're at the beach, you know you're going to have a a different perspective. I'd want you to come away with that. It's a, it's a broad. It's not just about Dunkirk. It's about everything you've ever done. One thing that I was very—I mean, I, I think this might be worth. I find this quite interesting. Your viewers can decide if they agree. But one thing that I, when I was in Dunkirk, I always find that um, sort of being somewhere can really inform you about an event that took place up there, um, however many years before it was so. So I, I found this story which fascinated me, which was that there was a, 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 signals, a naval signals commander called, uh, I think his name was Ellison, who wrote, I found all this in the British National Archives, that a Marconi transmitter had been brought to Dunkirk. Because one of the big problems that this guy Tennant I was talking about had was communicating with ships offshore, communicating with Um, Ramsey back in Dover can basically communicate because obviously none of this has been planned in advance. Communications have been set up. And while there was an undersea link between Pan and Dover, there wasn't anything where he was, which is actually in Dunkirk. So for part of the time, he was using the French transmitter, which is back at the French um, headquarters. Part of the time, he was going to ships that were on the mole and using their transmitters to talk it over, or to, to other shit. What? None of this was ideal. So he had a trans- Mark-only transmitter brought over, and it was brought in to, you know, to, to to beach. And I read this account, and it said it was brought over, and then it was in use for a few hours, and then it broke. It stopped working because it got sand in the generator. So fascinating. Because I thought, you know, they've gone to the effort to bring this huge, great, state-of-the-art Marconi transmitter and get sat. You know, they, it's only in use for a few hours because it gets all sanded up. And I was sort of thinking, well, how do they? How are they so complacent to let you know? And I had almost, almost this picture of you know, a couple of naval ratings moving it and dropping it in the sand to not admit it. So, oh, I don't know. And I really, I you know, it's like Laurel and Hardy. I, I couldn't. And then when, when I was there for a period, long period of time, and you realize that when the wind, the wind really gets up, even in summer, and when the wind gets up, it becomes like a sort of desert sandstorm where, not quite like a desert sandstorm, but it becomes pretty fierce. And so people, everyone was sort of walking around with goggles and with, sort of, you know, pre COVID masks around them and, and, and things wrapped around their faces. And, and it was really, really difficult to, to function. And it occurred to me that well, that was probably what happened. Probably the wind blew, and, and, and it just silted up the, the thing, and it, it, it then couldn't be used. And that's what I mean by sometimes you have to be at a place to really, you know, the, 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 the location actually informs the history. And I found that very moving actually, to be there at the same time of year. And the weather wasn't particularly bad, but there were periods when it just got so windy that it it became almost unbearable. It just whipped up. And and I think the lesson there, if there is one, is sometimes you have to go to a place to really begin to understand what might have happened back in the day.
0: No, that makes sense. That the... Location is also a character in, in history, for sure. Since you got to work on the movie, what's, one of you, what's your favorite story from your time on the production? Oh, in line. oh, my favorite story. One is that there was a
1: screening before the film was actually out there, released. There was a screening for veterans. that was done in London at, at a small cinema. And my God, that was moving. I mean, all of these, and you know, there the, the really aren't any left. I mean, there may be, none, but none that I know. And I don't know how many, twenty, twenty-five of the veterans with their families came and sat there watching this attempt to create, demonstrate their experience. And the the, the, the director, Christopher Melvin, was so much more nervous about how they reacted to the film than how any critic or any you know any anybody else. He wanted it to be acceptable to them. Um, and I found that very moving. And the fact that you know these people who had been there a lifetime—they were they were kids actually when they were there—and here they were now with you know their great grandchildren. Some of whom were now in the military. There was one man who's, who's had a great grandchild who's in uniform, and he's just, oh my God, it, it, it's, it's almost too much to get your head around. And there they were sitting in the audience watching it, and that was very moving. This was another thing that I remember is the day that the director first showed up at my house, at um, my flat. I got a flat in London, and um, he showed up, and we chatted, and he showed me that the script, and he left the script with me overnight, which is I later realize is not something he tends to do. He's very well, He's quite secretive over over scripts, like. And, and it was it all happened quite quick. It came as a, you know, it was sort of a, a not something I was expecting, and so it was, and it, you know, you do what I do to write books, and you do. It, it, it's an interesting life. It's not a particularly a. Uh, you don't know what's coming next. Could be good. Could be bad. It's always interesting. And this was a particularly interesting little you know, period of, of, of my working life. So yeah, it was. I'm I'm very grateful to do that.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Dunkirk. Speaking of books, not only were you the historical consultant on the movie, you also wrote the book adaptation uh, called Dunkirk: The History Behind the Major Motion Picture. So for someone listening to this who wants to learn more. Maybe can you give us one of your favorite stories from the real history that didn't make its way into the movie from the book that, and where they can pick up a copy of it? Oh, gosh, a real story. Just, uh, <laughs> the tough questions at the end, sorry.
1: <laughs> I can't remember. Um, oh, God, there's, there are so many just, you know, fantastic stories of, of, you know, all the way through running from the, well, I mean, uh, sort of running from the, you know, the political, the fact that there were people in cabinet and wanted to, Make peace he wanted to approach Hitler through through the uh the Italian ambassador because he was not not yet in the war and um, how different things would have turned out if 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 that approach had been taken to so, you know God knows how many personal you know unbelievably personal stories of them um, yeah okay here's one here's one i um this to me is sort of sums up how. Strange it was. You had these passenger ships that were coming and coming alongside the mole. These large, you know, I've talked about the Crested Eagle and others, but even bigger than that, you know, these really big ferries, really, that were, that were coming to pick people up. And there's one, and they're full of, you know, people working on board. Who, when they were ferries, were working on board. And so one man talks about the station officer. Talks about the fact that they were in terrible state. They got up the mole. Walked over dead bodies to get on board the ship. They clambered on. This man said he collapsed in the corner, just a quiet corner, and just, you know, passed out. And he said he was woken up um, almost immediately by a man in a white coat who came up to him and said, Would you, could I get you anything? And he looked up and he said, You're not, are you a steward? And the man said, Yes, sir, I am. So this was a passenger ship with its stuff. This was a waiter. Come up to him, he, you know, he, and asked him if he wanted it. He said he just couldn't believe it after the the hell he would just experienced here. It was a wait, and he said, "Well, I, I, no, I don't suppose, that you'd get me a glass of beer." And and the man said, "Well, I I, I would sir, so, but I'm sure you know the rules. I'm not allowed to sell alcohol till we're three miles offshore." And he said. He said, at that moment, I thought, with people like this, how can we lose the war? I mean, you know, it, 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 it was a moment for him where he stepped out of the hell of Dunkirk and onto this ship where a man said, well, I'd love to get you a beer, sir, but I can't do that until we, we've moved offshore. And, and he said, uh, yeah, it kind of sums up the weirdness of the whole event, that the improvised nature, of it, the fact that, you know, Everyone was called to called in to help. And even the waiter who absolutely will
0: stick to the rules and love to get would beer but can't get it. I mean that's even similar to what we've been talking the contrasts, you know, the this from beginning to end. Well thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's learned a lot.
1: I'm glad, yeah, no, I mean it's it's nice. It's great talking about it. I mean I was you know, like I said I was just I was in Dunkirk a week ago. It's the first time I've been back for ages. And it, it really, it was, it was wonderful to be, to go back and to, to you know, have all the, the memories sort of, of the film and of the veterans and, um, you know, the whole story sort of stirred up again in me. And, um, and I strongly recommend, you know, if people want to go and visit, it's a, it's, it's a very, very emotive um, place to visit. Um, So, I I strongly recommend
0: This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Joshua Levine once again for sharing his expertise about the history behind Dunkirk. If you want to hear more about the true story, I would highly recommend picking up a copy of Joshua's book called Dunkirk, The History Behind the Major Motion Picture. As always, you can find links to that book in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the senior most surviving officer from the Titanic helped in the Dunkirk evacuation. Number two, Churchill didn't expect to evacuate anyone from Dunkirk. Number three, people not in the Navy who took their boats signed a form to become temporary members of the Royal Navy. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's go backwards and we'll start with number three. People not in the Navy who took their boats signed a form to become temporary members of the Royal Navy. That's is true. As Joshua explained, non-members of the Navy who took their boats across ended up signing a form that made them temporary members of the Royal Navy. That brings us to number two. Churchill didn't expect to evacuate anyone from Dunkirk. That's the lie. We learned that Churchill was hopeful to rescue about 30,000 from Dunkirk, but when all was said and done, over 338,000 people were rescued. That means... Number one is also true. The senior most surviving officer from the Titanic helped in the Dunkirk evacuation. As we learned, Charles Lightoller was the senior most member of the crew to survive the Titanic disaster. That was in 1912. Then in 1940, he used his own ship to help with the Dunkirk evacuation. Last but not least, it's time now to let you know how long it took to create this episode. If you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll know that I like to share this information just to help you appreciate all the podcasts you listen to. (laughs) After all, a huge majority of podcasts are like mine, completely free to listen to, but that doesn't mean that they're free to create. Quite the opposite. Even though podcasts don't always cost a lot of money, they almost always cost a lot of time. The time it takes to learn the technical side to begin with, the research to create them on an ongoing basis, to record them, to edit them, and so on. But I only have the stats for my own show. So with that in mind, today's episode took me 41 hours to create. And to make it clear, it's only my time. It doesn't include any of Joshua's time. And to be even more specific, it isn't even all of my time. Because that 41 hours is only the time it took for me to produce this one episode. It doesn't include all the time I spend building, maintaining the base on a True Story website, finding new guests, scheduling logistics, social media, and so on. All those things don't really have anything to do with making today's episode specifically, but they're still required overall to make the podcast. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider supporting the next episode over at com slash support. Once again, that's com slash support. And don't forget, if you want to chat about this episode, you can do that over in the Based on a True Story Facebook group. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and I'll chat with you again really soon.